Welcome back to the New Wave Post-Punk Security Hour. We're listening to The Cure's Charlotte Sometimes with the lyrics, all the faces, all the voices blur, change to one face, change to one voice. It's based on a book of the same name that has a theme of identity and, to our AppSec ears, sounds a little like biometrics gone wrong. Which means, this week we talk with David DeSanto from GitLab about the role of security in open source and the role of open source in building modern, secure applications. In the news segment, curating code comments, patient payouts, seeing a forest of decision trees, adding encryption, analyzing encryption, Windows hello versus pictures of you, and more. Grab eyeliner hairspray and stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. It's the show to learn the latest tools, techniques, and processes necessary to understand DevOps, application security, and cloud security. Your trusted source for the latest application security news. It's time for Application Security Weekly. Whether you need to manage bots, protect cloud applications at runtime, stop form jacking attacks, or secure your web applications and APIs, only Imperva offers a unified solution to protect from edge to application and data in one tool. Imperva helps you achieve more, save money, and become more efficient with fewer security vendors needed. Start a free trial today to easily protect your apps and website with Imperva. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash Imperva. In any business today, there comes a moment the moment you realize you can secure the code as fast as you write it. Instead of testing everything, you can just test the right things. It's not about tools, but intelligent risk management. That's the moment you choose Synopsys. Build secure, high quality software faster. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Synopsys. Looking to improve your web application security? Probly is reinventing web application security. Probably focuses on the vulnerabilities that matter, eliminates false positives with evidence-based scanning, and provides a simple point-and-shoot solution that is easy to use. Probably's thorough coverage ensures accurate identification of vulnerabilities in any modern web application or API. Improve your web application security processes by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Probably and start your free trial today. This is episode 158, recorded July 19th, 2021. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm here with John Kinsella. Hello, John. Hello, host Mike Shima. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing quite well, and it's good to see that we both have a theme of blue this week. Um, so I'll start thinking of all your new wave songs that have the word blue in it. Um, and while you're thinking about that, I'd like to remind everybody that Security Weekly Unlocked will be held in person this December 5th through 8th at the Hilton Lake Buena Vista. Our call for presentations deadline has been extended. So write up your presentation or at least write up an abstract and go submit it to us. You have until July 23rd at midnight Eastern. Visit securityweekly.com slash unlocked to submit your lovely presentation. In our July 22nd technical training at 11 a.m. Eastern, learn how guided SaaS NDR enables rapid response. Register now at securityweekly.com slash webcasts. If you missed any of our previously recorded webcasts or technical trainings, they are available for your viewing pleasure at securityweekly.com slash on demand. David is the Senior Director of Product Management for Security at GitLab. He is a network security professional with a deep background in security research and product strategy. David lives in the greater Dallas, Texas area with his wife and their two dogs. Hello, David. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
So this is uh, this is a fun topic for us to talk about because uh, it's open source and security. Um, but I think we're also possibly going to get into community. So I don't want to do uh, too much foreshadowing here. But um, l- let's just start off with the open source aspect with, you know, open source has been around for a long time. So I want to just set this up with a little bit of a preamble. But there's also some recurring themes that come up from from open source. One is it's written, you know, it's written for everyone to use. A lot of ways to collaborate on it, submit patches. But there can also be concerns, whether legitimate or not, about the security of open source. So let's just kind of maybe dive in uh, from the 10,000 foot view, uh, then dive in from there about what are the challenges that you've seen or heard from open source and how has GitLab dived into, you know, addressing those or working with open source and security? Yeah, absolutely. So to kind of walk our way through those, I think you're right. I think there's been a misconception as to what open source means when talking about security. I think a lot of that has come from data breaches. You can think of the SolarWinds attack. There's been other ones where someone points back and says, well, I pulled in this open source dependency, introduces vulnerability, and thus it made my application vulnerable. And I really wanted it today for us to talk about it and figure out how to destigmatize open source because I feel, and, and as you mentioned, GitLab plays a role in making sure open source is important in, in DevSecOps. And when looking at open source and the role it plays, you're right with your opening statement. The fact that there are a lot of people who can contribute means that everyone's working together to make things secure. And together, we can help each other out, which I think is the big thing you lose when talking about just proprietary software. Yeah, I think that the, the DevSecOps is the, is the good angle there too. And to the point of things like solar winds, and just last week, John and I talked about, you know, 20 year old vuln, or vulns 20 years ago in Microsoft software. So, you know, enterprise built software. And we've seen software with vulnerabilities that actually have been discovered after at least a decade, both in open source and with closed source. So th- there's definitely a challenge there in the sense of, you know, we need many eyes to look at the security of open source. But a lot of times those those eyes need to have some good capabilities behind them. So what 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 are some ways we might be able to tackle in, in open source uh, th- that, that aspect of vulnerabilities or finding vulnerabilities or maybe fixing them so we can just build up a better, a more secure ecosystem? Yeah, so that's a, a great segue in, right? So I, I really think the, the thing that's missing when people talk about open source is the contribution angle, which gets into the community component you were touching on. People will consume open source and they feel that that open source is there to help them. And that is true. However, as a user of open source, you should also be a contributor to open source. And that kind of gets into the vulnerability part you're talking about. And so let's say you're using package A. Package A has a vulnerability in it. You have found that vulnerability. Fix it. Contribute it back. Now you're not just helping yourself be secure because you're trying to figure out how to secure yourself with that package, but you're now helping out everyone else with that. Because you're right, I think the scariest part and doesn't need to be open source to be scary is how long it could take to find a vulnerability and how long was that vulnerability known for before, say, you found it. And as a person who is now leveraging open source, you're taking the step to fix the issue and submit it back. You're not just helping yourself. That could be a tenfold, hundredfold uh, improvement for lots of people. It could be competitor 
because that sometimes that's a concern as to why you would contribute to open source. It could be a whole other market. Like, right, we could talk about 20-year-old vulnerabilities in Microsoft. <laughs> you could also look at things like vulnerabilities in Apache, one of the main web services that are out there. The Apache, and this is probably about seven, eight years ago, had a vulnerability that was discovered, but it was actually existing for seven to eight years and was being used by a lot of different toolkits, so rootkits that are designed to help people attack, um, as I'm sure your audience is aware of. And that being fixed by the person who found it is not now just helping themselves or helping their industry or helping people they know. They're helping the entire world be more secure and they're addressing that vulnerability. I think the, the key here is the second part of your, your question is like, how do I secure myself? How do I know it's secure? How do I know I'm being safe? And I think that gets into DevSecOps best practices. I think people look at DevSecOps sometimes as I'm validating my own software, but your own software is not just what you're writing, it's the packages you're, you're using, the contributions from around the world. Everyone uses things like NTP, talked about web services, whether it's Apache, Nginx, people are using, in the case of Python, there's a date and time module that almost everyone uses. If you are using that package and you're treating it like it is your own software, you're now doing the same due diligence you would do for your own software, thus finding that vulnerability earlier. And again, getting to that first point, being able to contribute it back. Um, I, I think that was the, the two parts of your question. I've been talking for a while, Mike, so I want to make sure I got uh, all the <laughs> No, no, I think, I, I think that's great. And I actually want to um, kind of talk a bit more about that 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 responding to you know to fix a, a vulnerability because uh, engineering teams devsecops teams actually have uh, a couple choices available to them and one might be to yes fix the bug and submit it back to the community but in some cases it could be what if you know th there are situations where they might be relying on a package that has been essentially become abandoned where so of course yes they can fix a bug and if somebody else wants to use it um there just might not be a great population out there but what i'm for sure. steering this yeah steering this part of the the conversation to you're a DevSecOps team. One, obviously, you can fix the vuln, especially in very popular, well, you know, commonly used, pretty pervasive types of packages. But how does a DevSecOps team look at a package that might be closer to abandonware or forking, which are completely legitimate responses to open source software and adapting them? But what are some of the, the thought processes they might have to go to, or what are some of the engineering trade-offs they should consider as that as part of their strategy? Yeah, you're kind of touching on the three things that can happen when you find that vulnerability, right? So you can first do the one I'm suggesting, uh, which is write it yourself, fix the vulnerability, recontribute it. You have the option of internally forking it yourself, and that comes with its own additional overhead that you may or may not want to take on. And then there's the option of it's abandoned software, and now what do you do? And to that one, I think that's really where you being an open source steward, you may be using something that looks abandoned, because no one else is contributing to it, but it could still be relied upon by a lot of different organizations. And that kind of takes you back to the, maybe you should look at contributing what you saw as a fix. Now, I will add a caveat to that, of course, that I, in my time prior to you know going to the dark side and going into product, I was in engineering, led engineering teams, was a developer at the beginning of my career. And there is that, concerned that you're using something that is so old that no one's going to pick it, pick it up. And at that point, you need to find a replacement for that. 
And that could be, again, forking it, or it could be finding a newer package. I generally encourage people when they're looking at dependencies to look at recent contributions to that project. Is it a push once a year, but there's no activity over that time for the next push? Is it actively being contributed to? There's packages that get multiple updates a day, right? It just depends on who in that community is working on it. And then if it's been years, you yourself now using that in your software have to make the determination, what is the worst risk for you? And I, I think that kind of ties into what really, when you look at what happened in the SolarWinds attack, you look at other trends related to that, it gets into software is needs to have a bill of materials. And there's a lot of talk about SBOMs and, and being able to have traceability. And I, I do believe that that's going to be the thing that's going to help everyone feel a little bit more comfortable with regards to pulling in third-party dependencies, not just the scanning of it, but knowing that it is a trusted package, you know where it came from, you have that traceability that you may not have on older projects that are reaching abandonware. Yeah, and I think there's there's definitely aspects too of just uh, Solar Winds also taught us the importance of the the integrity of your CI CD process, so that when you build that trusted pack, or at least when you attest to a trusted package, that um that that attestment or attestation is actually valid and it hasn't been uh, tampered with along the way. I'm curious there, talking a little bit more about the SBOM because you were bringing up these ideas of dependencies. And I, I think there could also be a bit of a trade-off because on the one hand, um, there's that aspect of we're bringing, we uh, a DevOps team are bringing in some software, some third-party software packages and we may vet them, or maybe we don't vet them. Maybe we're just work, relying on some transitive trust and saying that, well, this has an SBOM or other people are using it. Therefore, we need to uh, you know, align our code scanning or our in-depth verification on our first-party code, if you will, the code that we're writing as opposed to the code that we're using. So I, I, I'm not necessarily setting that up as that's the way things must be or actually happen, but I'm kind of curious with the idea of putting the effort into or having a budget of engineering time, whether it is where to spend it on third-party code, first-party code, scanning, et cetera, that what does it start to look like in your experience as your, you know, companies like GitLab, tooling companies, focusing on better ways to make these tools easier to apply, security tools easier to apply to code? And I'll just say code as first or third-party. Yeah. So... You kind of touch on one of the reasons why I came to GitLab as part of my career. And I, I've been in security for longer than I should admit to, because I want everyone <laughs> to think I'm a cool young hipster. But you know, in the time up until I joined GitLab, I always felt like security was an important thing, but maybe it wasn't as friendly as it needed to be. And so when you talk about tool companies like GitLab, we wanted to look at security and make it approachable for the developer, which gets into your comment about the CI being key. So for doing scanning in a way that it's developer friendly, it allows you to scan as often as you need to scan and do incremental scanning, something being native inside your DevOps workflow, in this case, built directly into your CI pipeline, allows you to get that security as close to that developer as you can possibly get it while surfacing the results to the developer in a way that they can understand. I, there's a comment I like to make whenever we're talking about security and developers. Like developers don't wake up in the morning 
and say, I can't wait to write a critical vulnerability today in the application, right? They, they're saying, I want to write the best software I can. And I, I usually say something cheek after that, Mike, like, there, maybe there's a developer somewhere who wants to write nefarious code. It's possible, but I'm going to assume positive intent, assume everyone does not have that, that desire. They want to write good code. And giving secure results right before release or them not being part of a cause and effect, I wrote these seven lines of code and now have this vulnerability, makes it very hard to address that vulnerability. And that can be both in the in-house written software, that first party as you're referring to, software being written. That's also true about the third party software. As I am developing and I am saying, and I'll use that time module example again with Python, it's like, I know I need to take action on timestamps or I need to be able to calculate out duration. I need to do something is that if I am scanning when my code invokes that package, I'm now validating that third-party application as if it's in-house written. Because when the code leaves your company, and that could be an internal app, so say leaving your internal development team, or it goes to a customer of yours, the customer's not going to be like, oh, that's totally fine. I get there's a vulnerability in that package. That wasn't your responsibility. Like I know the difference in the binary, which what you wrote versus what you compiled in. Like that's not how the customer's gonna look at it. They're gonna be like, hey you wrote this application and it has this vulnerability in it. And so you have to blur that line between what is first class or first person and that third party, third person code, because that's how the end product looks like. It's not two separate things and you can point and choose what, what is yours and what is not when you deliver it. Yeah, I think a lot of it, and that's a common theme of saying, you no, know, uh, build, build the tools into the pipeline, make them available to the, to the developers. I, I'm curious too, to ex maybe to expand on that a bit, you know, in, from a practical perspective. Uh, in, in your experience, how have you seen this be either most successful or are there some uh, pitfalls along the way that are ways to avoid just saying, you know, security team comes along and says, you need to go buy some tools and make sure they integrate into your CI/CD pipeline. And you know, I, I kind of doubt that that might be a nice phrase, but I kind of doubt that's where the conversation ends successfully. Yeah. So I, I'll use my life again as an example. I was when I was an engineering director before. That's exactly what happened. What you described. The security team came to me and said, Don't "You now need to be scanning your your software for vulnerabilities. Go buy a tool that works." I think. The pitfall of that statement is it's making the assumption that I, as someone in engineering, and mind you, I will tell you, I was a security engineering leader, so I did know what to go look at, right? But not everyone has that background. You can go and you can select a tool. It may or may not meet the need. You can also go select that tool, and now you're asking your developers to learn something new. And that kind of ties into the pitfall, right? So making the assumption that anything is going to work or someone who's not security minded understands what to choose is going to lead to that issue where now I've selected something that doesn't work. I've selected something that I need to figure out how to bolt in. And it brings you to the final pitfall, which is now I've got to figure out how to get those results over to the developer who wrote the code that caused that vulnerability. And that could be easy. It could be very hard depending on how you're structured. And I think the, nuance that a lot of people miss is there's a difference between saying I ran a security test as part of my CICD pipeline and I ran a security scan that is shifted left into my development workflow. And it becomes very apparent the difference between those. 
when you look at something that is natively in the CICD pipeline, can run on a Delta code change, can run really quickly, can surface the results back to the developer and the person doing the code review versus I now need the CICD pipeline to call another tool. The other tool is going to run a standard scan, which could take minutes, hours, days. If, you're, if it's an external fuzz test, a week it could take to run. Now the results have to find their way back over and now they're maybe printed out in the console of the job that was run by the CI pipeline. Maybe it's added as a random comment on an issue. Maybe it's just a link saying developer click here and go retrieve the results. Either way, to your point, it's not just that it's in the CIDC pipeline, it's that it's in that CI CD pipeline as a native functionality that shifts it to the development organization in a way they can understand. And I think doing that, and in my experience doing that, you end up getting everyone contributing to security, which is goes back to the, the opening theme you talked about, which is open source in DevSecOps and open source in a modern application. Security is not one person's responsibility. I, again, at one point ran a red team and my job was to validate all the apps the company had. We had hundreds of applications and I had five people on my team. How am I gonna test that many applications? Now, asking my team to work with the development organization and shifting that security left and it's Delta security scans, now we can collaborate together and together make the application more secure, make our organization more secure. And you can apply that same thing to your open source software you're pulling in and treat it like that first party component and give it that same level of scrutiny. And I think to kind of put the bow on that point, that goes back to now you can contribute fixes if you find them and make everyone more secure. You asked a little bit ago, what is GitLab's role or GitLab's view on all of this? And I will kind of sum it up pretty succinctly for you. So our application is available to everyone. Our source code is public. We're an open core company. We take that beyond what we just do. When I talk about fixing and contributing to open source, a lot of the security functionality that customers rely on GitLab for, if it's written in-house, you can see the source code, you can validate it. If we're pulling in an open source module, we're also scanning that as part of our building of our application and we're contributing fixes upstream. I'm very proud by both our internal security team and our security product development organization for contributing to projects like uh, Cilium, Trivi, SEMgraph, and making everyone more secure. If everyone's working together, that's the only way everyone can be secure. And giving my life experience as that example, being on the other side of that, I'd much rather feel like I have a partner and not have someone who's looking at me and expecting me to figure out how to use something or figure out how to translate the results for them. And working together, everyone's more secure. I, I, See, I, I, you, oh, you, go ahead, John. You did a, a, a really good but really interesting job there of um, describing to people what, you know, a lot of us refer to as developer first, but it's, you know, shifting left to get to that developer first position where some of these tools, legacy tools just can't get there. Um, so I, I think that last five minutes of, of, of you talking there, I might use that as a copy and paste and send it to people that are asking me what dev first is. Um, a point I want to bring up, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on, 
um, it, it's been near and dear to my my heart in the open source community is contribute contribution to open source isn't specifically just software. Um, you know, I'd say there's a there's a uh, um, a large dearth of security people in, in open source, right? We, we we tend to work on like the open source projects like the, the NMAPs and the trivies and things like that. But there's so many other open source projects out there that like when you find that bug, like you said, as an example, being able to contribute, contribute that back is um, massive. But also just being able to say, your defaults aren't that great. As a security person, here's what I'd like to see different. Um, let me help improve the documentation. Let's actually talk about how to run this securely, not run as root. What, what's your thoughts around that sort of the general concept of, of working on contributions as more as just something that the engineer can do? Yeah, so that's great. And please plagiarize everything I've said. That's totally <laughs> cool. I, I think it's important to separate that and help people understand the difference. So you're right. I think the role people can have in open source is not just writing code. There's a lot of things that are amazing tools today, but they may run as root unless you take the time to set them up. And as a developer, you're aware of those types of permissions. So you could easily contribute documentation to help say how to set this up securely. And you can see that those types of contributions on some of the most common open source platforms that are out there and, and projects that are out there because someone's taking the time to be like, hey, you know, that defaults to a bad chmod permissions. If you change it to this, you'll have a, a more secure environment. And I would take what you said a step further and say, that's not just developers who can contribute. It's not just security people contribute. Anyone can contribute to the open source project. I've had friends who are not security experts, they're not developers, but they're really good IT ops people. And they take the time to say, hey, here's a, a pitfall you can run into um, when connecting and configuring Kubernetes. And here's the quick checklist you can have to make sure you set it up securely. And those sorts of people on the ops side who are very skilled at what they do also have that unique knowledge that could benefit everyone. So to your point, yes, developers can definitely contribute, but others can contribute too. Everyone can contribute to that open source project or any open source project. Yeah, I think that that's a fantastic theme to uh, it, it sounds like John, especially you're gonna have to em embrace and extend uh, that, that open source that um, ethos and especially I hadn't even been thinking of the documentation and secure defaults or just that changing the architecture in subtle ways. So, uh, you know, not running as root or drop privileges after you need something as root. So you uh, minimize your attack surface. Kind of curious. And I'm, I'm think there's a segue to be made here uh, because uh, about metrics or measuring success. Let me just say, broadly speaking, um, David, is because you were talking a little bit before about, you know, putting a tool in and just saying, like, I, I don't think just saying we have a tool that has improved the developer experience. That's a good thing. That's not necessarily a metric of success from a security perspective. But you did mention about having security is everyone's responsibility or a lot of participation. And that, to my mind, starts to sound like a better measure of success for security. And uh, even as John was was kind of positing on his question, that idea that security folks participating in non-security open source software, rather than writing yet another security tool, writing in the, you know, looking at the Apaches or looking at the other broad tools that just 
developers are using as part of their code. So my long-winded way of asking this question uh, is, what are some ways that you look for to see security be successful or even measure the, you know, measure security, if you will, of a, a project in general, open source or not? Yeah, so I, I think you, you touched on like the, the final component that makes this topic so interesting. People will measure sometimes incorrectly. And to kind of give you a great real world example, and this goes back to where I was at Red Team organization, and we were doing work for another company. So we were contracted and they were trying to meet PCI requirements and we didn't see a WAF deployed anywhere. And when we asked the question, hey, on PCI, like 5.3 point clause, whatever, it says you must have this. And they said, well, we have that. And they pointed to a closet, went over, opened the closet door, and the WAF was still in a box. And when asked why, they said, <laughs> well, it says we must have it. It doesn't say we must be using it, it must be in line, it must be doing this, must be doing that. And that example applies directly into your question. So I could say, well, look, I am meeting the goal, it says I should run a SAS scan or a DAS scan and check. I have those scanners. So we're good. We're, we're great. And I think the challenge is security is a little more complex than just checking a box. You need to be measuring correctly. And some of the suggestions I usually make to people are, yes, let's validate you have security scans running. Maybe the next goal is make sure people are actually reviewing the results. I The uh, target breach back in 2013, I think it was, they actually had FireEye devices deployed and they were alerting them there was vulnerability but no, or a breach, but no one was looking at the logs, right? So yeah. let's make sure you're measuring that people are looking at it. And you can do that by triaging of vulnerabilities. I think the, the best way to measure is to measure escape rate and treat it like a normal defect. So mm. look at trends over time. Am I continually having the same amount of vulnerabilities every time we go to release? Am I having the same vulnerabilities every time someone, like a developer, checks in code? Are they always introducing the same type of vulnerability? How often are vulnerabilities reoccurring? Are we reintroducing the same problem over and over again? Are we introducing only what would be quote unquote new, not something that previously existed in the code base? And we start to look at those, you can begin to see trends and say, hey, look, we are continually getting better. Instead of finding 25 critical vulnerabilities with every merge or every security scan, we're now seeing three. That's a trend that's going down. Oh, look, we're seeing a new trend that the mediums are going up. Well, are, should we be educating better? You know, there are things that you can be able to pick up from that. And the one thing that I usually stress to to people, it's also making sure your scan results are up to date. And that's another metric you can pull. To your comment, um, like about, I'm using something that's abandonware. If you've not pulled that software in a while and you're not scanning it, you're giving yourself an attack surface by choice, as opposed to making sure that's included in your practices and you're making sure it is on the version it is being scanned and all the things that go with that. But I do think that's the challenge. I think people need to look beyond that example I gave, which I think one of you laughed at, which I'm glad you laughed because it's <laughs> funny looking back, it was a little painful at the time, right? But you need to figure out that you're, you are testing that, you are measuring it, and you're seeing trends. And 
I guess I'll leave leave this as the final point to your to your question. Again, I don't think developers are waking up in the morning and saying, I want to create a zero day today. Please, my day would be complete if I did that. Right. So let's help them be better developers and also educate. I do occasionally see customers, not just here, but other places I've worked, where will say, what's a cross-site scripting attack? Or what's the SQL injection message I'm getting? Like, I don't understand it. Provide resources, help them learn, and you'll, you'll end up with better code at the end. No, I love it. And I'm, all, I'm also going to steal um, what you said about API security, where API stands for assume positive intent. So uh, that will be what, what, uh, what, what I'm stealing from this uh, particular session. But um, I think uh, if there's any metric we're going by, it's that we do have a, it would be great to have a recurring conversation on these themes with you. I've, I've quite enjoyed it. Um, any, I, I, you just gave us, a, a, you know, some final words there on some, some metrics. Any other final words about um, uh, either your work or something we should be looking forward to in the next couple of months? Yeah, absolutely. So we at GitLab are taking security very seriously. Um, we consider it part of the three pillars to make up the product. And that's because we see that as you get developers to, to be part of that security story and highlight for you to kind of show that the first, like we just recently announced a partnership with uh, Aqua Security around Trivi. That's very exciting. That is two competitors working together to make the security, uh, make security better for everyone. Uh, part of that is we're now providing our vulnerability research at GitLab as a component of the Trivia Open Source project. So that's a, that's a huge thing for companies who do not have their own vulnerability research teams. Moving forward, some of the things I want to highlight for you, we are focusing on standard reporting practices. And some of that's going to be partnering with the Linux Foundation. Linux Foundation kicked off digital bill of materials as a way to get that traceability that we were talking about at the beginning. And GitLab sees that as very important, and we're going to be taking an active role in that working group uh, and beginning to show what we're already doing today, because we do that as part of our product. You can actually get a software bill of materials, and we'll tell you what the packager grabbed it, what it was, what packages it required, what packagers pulled those in, and giving that information. I would say the, the real final thing to highlight for you, and, and by the way, I would love to talk to both of you as much as you want to talk to me. So if you want to have a recurring <laughs> conversation, I'm game. Um, but we're working on what it means to have true traceability in vulnerabilities. And to kind of give you a sense of what that means, you can look at a vulnerability out of a SAS scanner because it's looking at your source code and say, that vulnerability was found on line 10 or line 100. Or if it's an enterprise application, probably line 100,000 because applications get really big. <laughs> True. You cannot do that with DAST. DAST is a black box scanner. It's scanning the running application. However, having access to your source code and building abstract syntax trees for execution and call flow, we're working on how we tie that back to a line of code to help you find that vulnerability faster. We're also now doing that with container scanning as well as part of that partnership with Aqua. I expect that what you're gonna see from GitLab is a lot better information and a lot more sharing. And if, that, if there's two things you take away, I would say GitLab believes security is a team effort and that we want to be that trusted partner in the industry. And, and we've built that strong relationship with customers today, which you can see in our reviews, uh, white papers that our customers have done, um, as well as general industry reviews of what we're doing. So 
Um, that's a little bit of what GitLab's doing, where we're going. And uh, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to continue the conversation. Metrics is part of that theme this year and how we make metrics be more meaningful, more actionable, and of course, tied back to education. Sounds awesome. And unfortunately, we have a metric of time working against us right now. So I do want to say once again, thanks, Dave, for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for the time. Also want to thank our listeners and John for joining us as well. If you'd like to learn more about GitLab, visit securityweekly.com slash GitLab. And even though I know developers probably aren't waking up in the morning thinking, I want to write a critical zero day, uh, hopefully they're waking up and thinking they want to list, find out what uh, musical references ASW is making this week. And with that in mind, we're going to take a quick break and return with news of the week. DisruptOps helps you find and fix cloud security issues fast. Getting bombarded with irrelevant alerts is frustrating. DisruptOps gives security and DevOps teams prioritized findings and routes relevant alerts to Slack or Microsoft Teams with automated response options that save you time. Finally, security is inside your workflow instead of in your way. Listeners can access the full platform free for 30 days by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash DisruptOps. We discuss application security a lot on this show, and we know that the implications for code security have become even greater as cloud adoption accelerates software development. Shift Left bridges the gap between security teams and developers to find and fix vulnerabilities accurately from the source. Shift Left Core is an innovation in code security with industry-leading accuracy and speed. It combines next-generation static code analysis, intelligent software composition analysis, secrets detection, security insights, and contextual developer security education in one easy to use platform. Learn more and create your free, yes, free account at securityweekly.com forward slash shift left. Are you looking for a solution to protect your web apps against the most business critical security vulnerabilities? Unleash the power of automated ethical hacker knowledge with Detectify for continuous coverage and relevant security vulnerability findings. Upgrade your web app security with speed and scale and start a two week free trial at securityweekly.com forward slash Detectify. Go hack yourself. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Shima, joined by John Kinsella. Security Weekly is more than happy to announce that we will be at InfoSec World 2021 in person, October 25th through 27th. This year, our annual partnership with InfoSec World is extra special as we are both business units under the Cyber Risk Alliance brand. What does that mean for Security Weekly listeners and InfoSec World attendees? Glad you asked. You will get to see and hear from many of the Security Weekly team at the event, and you will save 20% off on your World Pass. Visit securityweekly.com slash ISW2021 to register using our discount code. Do you want to stay in the loop on all things Security Weekly? Visit securityweekly.com slash subscribe to subscribe on your favorite podcast catcher or our YouTube channel. Sign up for our mailing list, join our chatty Discord server, and follow us on our newest live streaming platform, Twitch. And Mr. Kinsella, with the announcements out of the way, that brings us to the news of the week. And I wanted to um, kick off with a short one that's actually a callback to last episode. Uh, we were talking about bug bounty payments, and you had made a um, kind of a reference about ways that an that organization might kind of use the, the bug bounty payouts to in increase them over time to sort of drive change or say, have we gotten... Have we gotten rid of a vulnerability class or let's actually make it more expensive for this vuln class so we actually incentivize this behavior? And uh, Facebook just announced that they're going to have a 
uh, a time bonus payout for for bug bounty hunters, which I think is kind of similar in spirit of uh, of using payouts, using a bug bounty program to incentivize particular behaviors. Um, so so it's kind of interesting. Now I think they're doing this ideally to. Uh, extol some patience on behalf of the researchers rather than driving their teams to fix things quickly. Uh, but I thought it was kind of uh, interesting that um, I think that they're, they're reading your mind or clearly listening to the, the insights you're sharing with us on uh, ASW. I want a royal juice. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it, it's, I was, what I was looking for here is I, I can't remember what their average payout size. I see 40 grand. But that's not average payout. But 10% is the max after 90 days, right? It scales uh, 5, 7.5, mm-hmm. then 10%. 10% to Facebook is nothing, right? So um, yeah. I, I think that's a – I suspect what's happening – I mean, yeah, it, it's it's definitely a, a move in, in a positive direction. Um, my sense, though, is is that's, uh, uh, um, as you said, incentivizing people to, to not – um, teeth gnash when it, they're not able to fix something within 30 days. So, um, and that that's an interesting aspect, right? Because what you're doing there monetarily is you're you're screwing with the, some of the concepts behind um, full disclosure, uh, where you usually have a 30 day window. Um, and and you know from a researcher's point of view, you want a 30 day window so you can start talking about and getting credit for what you've done. And they're basically saying, "Hey, slow down a little bit. You know, we'll we'll pay you we'll we'll pay you a little more tomorrow for um, your ice cream today, so to speak." Uh, and and that's it's interesting. It'd be interesting to hear what type of response um, researchers have to this. If all of a sudden now this does is this going to increase the average length of time that Facebook takes to respond to maybe what say forty days, forty five days? Um, I, I think it'll be interesting to watch this one and, and sort of see how it goes over the next six months or so. It will be interesting. I think you have to be a in a very mature place in a bug bounty program to be experimenting like this. And, you mm-hmm. know, in, in the back of my mind, too, I was also just thinking, you know, what are some of the perverse incentives that might come out of this? And it basically, you know, the unexpected, unexpected consequences that you're, you're kind of hinting at there. And I'm going to use that to actually jump to um, a, a different article uh, that I hadn't expected to talk about first, but why not? You set this up. Uh, there was um, references Sonic Wall, warn of imminent ransomware campaign targeting its EOL equipment, which, in fact, uh, the the campaign was not imminent. It was actually current and ongoing. And in this case, I kind of just wanted to hand wave over the fact that it's Sonic Wall, hand wave over whatever the particular vulnerability is, but talk more about the aspect of both as a on the vendor side from an AppSec team and even perhaps on the consuming side of being an AppSec team or maybe the, the, the DevOps team using devices like this. How do you deal with EOL software? And um, what are, you know, either both, what are the responsibilities as a callback to our discussion with David for security in this kind of situation? Or what should be the push of, uh, sh- should there be, or how am I trying to phrase this? How long should EOL software actually be supported with patches? And at what point can it be shed away? And depending on he- how you answer that, what kind of perverse incentives might come up here? Hmm. And, you know, the, the first two names that come to mind for me would be Oracle and Sun, which I guess, well, actually Oracle, Sun, and, um, yeah, those two. Uh, sorry, Cisco is the other one. Um, obviously, it's coming to mind. 
they and from the point of view of you know these companies have been around for what two or three decades now they've got very mature programs around us um you know that you know sun had the concept of both sunsetting as well as um end of life and basically the idea there is like we're going to give you notice of x years out we're no longer be going to be supporting this spark station five sorry for the flashback folks but um there we go uh but so the reason I mentioned that is it's obviously been done right by some orgs. I think more recently, if you think about what's going on with, uh, you know, like uh, uh, LTS support on yeah. some Ubuntu versions and Kubernetes is starting to do it. So there's obviously, there's companies out there doing this right. Um, SonicWall, I used in 98, 99. So I know those guys have been around for a while. Um, I still want to take a shower while I say their name. Sorry. But... Uh, so for for the folks that you know SME or SMB that, that need a, a smaller product, I mean that's probably even you're getting closer. I think to and I know they support more in SMB, but um, you're getting closer to the IoT problem we have now, where people don't right. know that something might even be sunsetted. Um, so I, I, I think they probably could have done a better job. I, I, I didn't see the backstory on what they initially told people about this, but now they're saying, y'all need to stop. And I think this is the second or third security incident this year where we've seen people say, unplug that thing now, um, which seems to be sort of one of the patterns of 2021, which is scary as all get out, but that's what folks are doing. Um, imagine if you're in a COVID environment where you can't get, well, hopefully now people can, but for a year we couldn't get back to the office easily. And you've got this thing which your you know your vendors telling you unplug it. Um, it doesn't leave the best taste in my mouth, so I, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely the the last year or two has not not been kind to edge devices in in terms of firewalls and, and VPNs and uh, zero days for that matter. And mm -hmm. you hit one of the areas I was going for that idea of uh, you know LTS with uh, a lot of the Linux distributions, a lot of the more mature modern open source for that matter organizations programming languages are saying this is what we're going to support up to this time and we've seen that historically as well with microsoft saying here's our operating system and we're going to stop supporting windows xp at some point yet there's still that cohort of people that just want to hold on to it or can't replace it or won't replace it due to budget or other constraints. And I think mostly what I was getting at is the, the angle of, I do like that idea of LTS and saying, we're going to say upfront what the plan is, and we're also going to just start to shed off a lot of the older architectures so we can move and adopt and improve things over time. So that in Microsoft's case, they could get rid of the print nightmare issue and pull that print spooler out of, you know, having local system privileges and re-architecting it so it's better sandboxed. And it's just a, a, better, uh, a better design overall rather than just a whole bunch more patching on top of patching on top of patching. Huh. Um, so I, th I, th I think we've, we've patched that one to death. Speaking of, uh, beating, I, I sorry, we bad segue it. there. We unplugged it. There we go. Thank you. So to plug things back in though, you've been plugged into, uh, two particular articles. One that I completely missed that is near and dear to my heart because of the, the type of vulnerability that came up. I can't believe I missed this. Share it with us, John. <laughs> I saw it. So I thought of you, um, <laughs> Yeah, Cloudflare has this thing called CDNJS, which is a, um, a CDN, Content Distribution Network, uh, specifically for JavaScript frameworks. Um, idea being that, uh, you know, open source developers, developers of these frameworks, of some of the JavaScript frameworks out there, 
they're able to go in. Um, well, they're able to within the their JavaScript library uh, specify sort of how it can be built and how how it should be uh, provided by CD and JS or things like this. Uh, and there was a path traversal bug in there. So depending on like yeah, I can't remember the specific file. Let's see if I find it quick. Well, we'll look at. I'll, I'll look and talk. Um, but yeah, you're able to specify in your uh, um, actually in the tarball itself. Um, and if that has been crafted correctly, you get access to something outside your your happy little directory. And then on top of that, there was the ability to actually execute those items. Um, which again, probably not the best for a, um, a large-scale public CDN. Um, but the result of this being that there was potential for a package to be crafted and uploaded, and then be able to execute something outside of their path, which then you know could allow you to do other things in that CDN box. These are just Unix boxes which you basically put around the world. So um, yeah, it was found in April. Uh, it's not not it's not clear if it if someone has been playing with this or not. So we'll presume not. Hopefully. Um, but yeah, I, I thought that would sort of tickle you when I saw that one. Totally. And, our dot, dot, and our listeners, dot, dot, slash, dot, dot, slash, and 17 seconds, game over. Uh, one of the other things I liked about this, too, is that uh, it, the, the software that has the vulnerability, our lovely path reversal, is written in Go. And the reason I, I like that is that I think there is, and we've extolled on this show before, you know, moving towards Go, moving towards Rust for just better experiences, getting away from C-based uh, and C-based languages, for example, that have vul complete vulnerability classes of memory safety issues, et cetera. But that move doesn't mean that we can wash our hands and absolve ourselves of security problems and security issues. So you can have a, a so to speak, more secure language like Go still have security issues. And so I think that's the other reason that it, it really jumped out to me is just a great example of uh, uh, that, that shared responsibility, uh, as David was describing, or everyone's responsible for security, still, is, still remains in place regardless of the language we choose. Yeah, and there's, I mean, in uh, Go specifically, there are, um, there's an API there to help sanitize a path. So the question comes down to is, does the developer right. use that? Because I've seen multiple cases where during code review, you're like, oh, there's a better way to do this. Um, and it's probably partially not knowing the intricacies of the language and just thinking, you know, string concat. But um, yeah, probably a good place where a static um, linter should be able to catch that is my guess. That makes sense, especially, you know, when there's preferred APIs or preferred patterns to, to go after. And in this kind of shifting then from something language specific to something language agnostic, code comments. Um, I, I will preface it with the not, not necessarily uh, over insightful or uh, overly original idea that we spend a lot more time reading code than we do writing code. Uh, therefore, the language, or the language in terms of English or communication language is important. And you had an article here about code comments. So I'm curious uh, if there's a particular one of these, the, these recommendations or, or reasons why code comments can be good for security really stands out for you. Um, you left out one particular use case there. So <laughs> we, we spend more time reading than writing. But in some uh, projects, I'll say we spend more time still trying to figure out exactly what the hell that code is doing. Um, <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> so um, please comment your code. 
it's I know this is a, this is a this is a big one. I've I've and this is not specific to any organization. Pretty much anywhere I've worked in my, through my career, I'm always ranting at people to comment their code. So um, if I've pointed out any of the single one listeners, any of this any if I've singled out any of the listeners that we've got here today, I'm not just singling out you. Trust me. Um, but nine rules. I don't know why they didn't make ten. Make a nice round number. Uh, the Stack Overflow blog, by the way, guys, is they've got some interesting stuff from a developer point of view. Um, this obviously isn't purely security focused. But where it is from two points of view, which I thought were not, I think one is, um, uh, to answer your question there, I believe it was uh, rule three. If you can't write a clear comment, there may be a problem with the code. And from the point of view of, you know, if you've ever had to mentor someone else or cheat someone, really anything, but let's talk about programming, say maybe a, um, I don't know, a for loop or something, how to compile in a CI environment, the just the act of purely describing it to someone else and educating them and get them up to speed and answering their questions frequently makes you better and makes you understand better what you're actually doing yourself. Um, that concept actually plays a little bit to comments in source code too. If you have to actually, if you're writing in C or assembly or really any language, a, a computer language, excuse me, rephrase that, a language which was uh, derived for computers, not so much for humans, it's sort of a halfway point, right? It's not English or pick the language. Um, and basically you take a step back and have to make that comment about what you're trying to do in a language you're used to speaking a little more fluently, hopefully. Uh, frequently that will actually allow you to understand, oh, I missed this one edge case or I forgot to add, I meant to put this one if case in, I forgot about it, let me go back and do it. So I think just from that point of view, either comments in the code or when you're doing a pull request or a commit, actually speak out what you're doing. Um, you know, I think that that's really handy. My pause there is I wonder if at some point someone's come up, come up with a module for Git which lets you TikTok your comments or something, I don't know. Um, but yeah, th this is a good read. I, I think this is one of those ones we, we, we bring them out to something like this every, hopefully not more than two or three months, uh, and say, hey, go back and think about as a developer or as a manager or, or any of these type of roles, how can you sort of improve upon what you're doing? So, you know, there's some amount of comments in your code and, and you're able to learn and, and process and help others from that. Um, as an aside, if I'm interviewing folks, and I've probably talked before about the homework assignment that I give people, um, engineers. Uh, if there's no comments in your code or there's no readme, you're probably not going to get much for much further past me. Um, if if you're submitting to me something which you are proud of and um, uh, that you feel represents what you're doing, and you can't comment it. I mean, if it's super basic, like, you know, hello world, okay, you don't need to comment that, right? But at the same time, if you're doing something a little more complex, and it's the first time I'm seeing, I need to figure out how to build it, how to run it, how to test it, and there's no comments and there's no readme file, you're, yeah, it's, it's, it, these things are important. Because if that's, that's what I'm seeing in your homework assignment, how am I supposed to work with you in the real world? So, yeah, things to think about. No, great point. There's a big difference between trying to convey what you meant to the compiler versus conveying what you meant to another human. And uh, the I think that's a great emphasis. And as an aside, we can uh, we'll, we'll set up a spinoff from Application Security Weekly. So send us your favorite code comments, and uh, we'll set up a TikTok uh, channel and have John read them <laughs> in uh, interpretive dance. That'd be fun to do on Discord. Exciting. People should go and hop into Discord and do that. Yeah. <clears throat> 
yeah, let us know. There, there, there may be something there. So, so we'll see. Maybe, maybe we have a whole new, whole new stream to send off to our TikTok through Twitch. We'll just put all the streams together. Um, in the spirit of trying to explain something clearly, um, I, I, I'm going to make an attempt here. I wrote this up in the show notes about uh, the bypassing Windows Hello without masks or plastic surgery, which is a bit of a fun title. But my explanation or my setup for this is that it's the heartwarming story of a face meets computer computer likes face computer lets human in however the relationship status gets complicated when face beats usb camera usb camera meets computer and the computer ends up with the wrong human authenticating so this was a really neat write-up it's going to be a presentation at uh, black hat this uh this summer so if you're going to be attending you'll get to see i think more details about it but what was really neat is that I was saying, yes, Windows Hello does facial recognition to authenticate someone, relies, and you can use an external, a third-party USB camera uh, to present the, ostensibly, the face image that's coming into Windows Hello to, to say, let me in, let the right one in. Uh, but in this case, the, the researchers threw together a USB camera. And what was something that I didn't realize, they threw in a two types of frames. One of the RGB, basically the, the color that you're seeing right now if you're watching the audio stream, but also a frame using from the infrared, from the IR uh, capability of the camera. What they discovered is that Windows Hello apparently wasn't paying attention to the RGB, RGB frames at all. And in fact, you could send a picture of SpongeBob SquarePants. It was only paying attention to the infrared frames. And so they would send an IR frame that they had taken of their, their target human, um, stored it, send that IR frame, send a black frame after it, just, I guess, to demonstrate a, a shutter or something of the, that's whatever Windows Hello was waiting for. And lo and behold, they actually got in. So it's a great write-up, both on how they pull off the attack, as well as some really good in-depth hardware hacking aspects of the insides of USB and USB cameras. So what, depending on what, what appeals to you most, um, it's a great write-up for the hardware side or just the, the security side. So definitely recommend checking it out. Gives a new meaning to little pig, little pig, let me in. <laughs> Indeed it does. <laughs> there was a theme too, and uh, we can either continue on that, but I, I wanted to pull in the idea of just machine vision and threat models. So there was an article that I came across about a scare quotes, undetectable console cheat. Uh, that basically a researcher developer was using machine vision to analyze video game screens basically to help with things like auto aimers or bots to, to shoot. And the, the, what jumped out to me was more so of the idea of uh, AppSec teams that work for games know about cheating and they try to deal quite a bit. There's a lot of emphasis on cheating countermeasures, fraud countermeasures. Uh, the same would be in this, you know, in the fintech world uh, or any place that's dealing with credit cards. They want to avoid bot behavior or unauthenticated, un unauthentic user behavior. Sorry, as I stumble over my own English language there. Uh, so this is kind of interesting is I think as a lesson in creative ways that people can take what's essentially old technology, machine vision, and perhaps apply them in new manners. And it might be something that perhaps wasn't part of the AppSec team's original threat model about how bots or cheating mechanisms might be set up. So it's just the, that more of a, a nudge towards creative thinking and in, in your threat modeling. 
Yeah, it's um, of course you a lot more of this. This is, I mean, this is this is, you know, we we we, we did our year or two of uh, machine learning <laughs> with my rainbow hands for those on the video are off, not on yeah. the video. Um, but I think you know we we talked recently about GitHub Copilot, uh, Copilot. Uh, we got something like this. This, I think, it's probably fair to say there's going to be more offensive uses for machine learning and things like this versus defensive, right? It, it's one of those things where they just have to get it good enough on an offensive side for it to be able to do what it needs to do versus if you go use this type of technology on a defensive way, it has to be 100%. Um, and that's going to be sort of tough. Doable, but tough. Uh, so I think it, this guy in particular, it sounds like he took it down voluntarily um, with a, a, a bit of a request from the, the Activision guys. You know, once someone's got that idea, other people go be working on that this weekend, right? It's the, I don't think the code behind that is too super difficult. You need to do what? Image recognition of a bad guy. And then I'm guessing some sort of, I don't know if they have like a mouse drive or something they're putting in there that they basically move the, the target around so you're nice and centered. Um, it sounds like a, a, a good college class homework problem, actually, uh, like end of year or something like that. But um, we'll probably see more of this. A lot more. We will. Yeah, I think it's sort of, sort of that 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 old uh, theme, old canard of of security is attacks only get better, right? Mm. And uh, so it's it's becoming the 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 cat and mouse of uh, just in in the gaming environment. Uh, kind of talking about threat modeling, I'm going to use that as an excuse to pull in another article uh, from uh, Kelly Shortridge and um, companions talking about deciduous. So this is a security decision tree generator, which essentially is just a, a nice way to turn a text file of some thought processes, which could be security decisions, they could be threat model, um, and basically pipe it through GraphViz easily and just build a nice directed graph or a nice visualization of what am I thinking about when I'm looking at an application thinking, was it, what does it do? What could go wrong? What should I do about it? Those basic, you know, three of the four basic threat modeling questions. Uh, so really neat article there, but I also wanted to, to highlight, it does also link to another article from several months ago, uh, also about kind of a, uh, called a retrospective or an introspective on security thinking that, that she calls YOLOSEC and FOMOSEC. Basically two ways of saying, are you approaching security and, and threat modeling in a way that is you're just using tools because everyone else is using tools and you haven't really brought in the context of what does your company do? What's the business context? What is your engineering budget around this? We just mentioned earlier in this this episode about you know Facebook and it's and it's the, the maturity of its bug bounty program. You don't just create a bug bounty program because everybody else is doing it if you haven't already gone through and get gotten rid of the low-hanging fruit or have some capability of looking at a particular type of vulnerability class, whether you have your own SCA or your own SAS tool. And that, I think, is you know just a, a an additional asterisk I wanted to throw on to this essentially now a pair of articles between decision trees and this other idea of YOLOSEC and FOMOSEC from Kelly. Yeah, you... Uh, um you you can create that that uh, um, that bounty program without doing your your basics first, but you're gonna be spending a lot of money. Um, <laughs> you will be. I, I didn't look at Yolo FOMO this time. I remember seeing the one she came out with them earlier this year. Yeah, she keeps coming out with good stuff. Um, the 
Desidious. I need to play with it. Uh, I I see what she's doing. It's interesting. I mean, it's you're basically codifying. At least this is my take on it. Like it sounds like you're codifying um, an attack graph, so it allows you to reproduce yeah. it. So I, I I imagine if you're working on this in a well, hell, either nowadays with this all remote over a, a Zoom or on a whiteboard, um, instead of using a whiteboard, use a screen and then be able to actually modify the what is this YAML. Um, and then uh, regenerate and have something you can go back to and, and easily refer to after the fact. Um, so that's interesting. Um, I feel like I might be yeah. missing part of it, and that's probably me having to, to do more research. No, I think it, it is. I, I think you've gotten the, the gist of it, and it does tie back to, I forgot which episode number it was, but we, you, you and I had talked about threat modeling and threat modeling tools. Mm -hmm. and, and essentially, a lot of the, there, there's a lot of tools out there, some of which are perhaps overly complex and maybe look neat, but in practice aren't really, you, you don't necessarily need a lot of really complex tools to do threat modeling other than maybe just a whiteboard, maybe something like this that can be a bit more visual and, and YAML driven or just a, a, a document or maybe a spreadsheet to track things. So I think here is perhaps just that, you know, simplicity is perfectly fine because the, the important thing is reasoning through the security of the application rather than having really fancy tool that's uh, that, that looks cool, that boils down to just what could go wrong, what are we going to do about it? Yeah, and I mean, that that's a great point, right? It's um, just because something looks simple doesn't mean it's not powerful, so... Yeah. yeah. And speaking of threat modeling and what could go wrong and what should we do about it, uh, there was a really nice article and uh, paper written about the security analysis of Telegram. A uh, couple neat things about this. It does go into some pretty, uh, I'll say medium deep. If, if such is an official term, uh, cryptanalysis. Uh, but it's talking about, you know, it's still relatively accessible in the sense of what does it mean to do encrypt and Mac or encrypt then Mac? Are you doing integrity checking on the plain text or on the cipher text? Because there are security implications of, of those particular steps. Sort of, if you do, if you have to decrypt data before you are have done a, a integrity checking, you might be throwing some data to be decrypted through a parser, and parsers, as we know, are a great attack surface. Um, but if you do integrity checking first before you start parsing or doing some operations on decrypting or that, that those encrypted blobs and you see that this integrity is bad, you can just reject the input completely and not expose potentially more of your attack surface. So that, that's just kind of one of the takeaways, one of the examples here. Uh, but one of the other things I like just from the overview is that uh, as they describe this, they they say to, to roughly quote, they focus their efforts on analyzing whether Telegram's MT proto, basically their, their crypto protocol, offers comparable privacy to surfing the web with HTTPS. So what's really nice is they said, here is the threat model or here is sort of the audience we're working with. If you have a different concern and different threat models beyond just worrying about is HTTPS going to protect me, then some of these uh, vulnerabilities might be even more consequential to you, or there actually might be other more consequential vulnerabilities that aren't presented in this particular uh, security analysis that you would want to dive into. So it's just a really neat way from a communications perspective of setting up. This is our. Th this is what. This is what we're going to look at, and this is what. This is our baseline for the risk analysis. That's what I'm trying to get to here. Mm. And a little bit of inside baseball. Um, I don't know if it's purposeful or not. 
I'm, I'm guessing it might be, when you drop a, a nice little tight phrase like that into a, a, an overview of something like this, that's what the media catches. Because when I first heard about this, I saw some <laughs> comment about um, Telegram security is is less uh, you know secure than TLS HTTPS, <laughs> and that that's how you fit a little morsel of information out there. Um, I, I looked over the <laughs> you can tell from the side. I looked over the crypto <laughs> stuff, um, but yeah, honestly, when I saw it, I saw the headline uh, last week of like, and I had the thought of why are they rolling their own crypto? Um, you know, especially when you got the signal protocol and other stuff out there, it's um, yeah, exactly. Okay, it it sounds like they are going to make some improvements. It sounds like they're not going to um, completely give up their way of of building the wheel. So hey, uh, power to them. Um, it it might fit their needs in a way I'm not familiar with, but I don't know. Because as far as I can tell, this is just on the wire, right? This isn't um, storage. Uh, yes. Yeah, I so, believe this is just the communication part. Why? I don't know. Okay, that. Yeah, this is this is you know. There's been another time recently where I mentioned to someone that you should probably encrypt their project tra- data between the nodes, even if it was within the Kubernetes cluster. You still need to, you know, that's still a network that can be sniffed. And in that case too, their original thought was to go off and start building. Um, some sort of crypto stuff and they're like, how do you do AES encryption in Go? And I'm like, well, it's there, but why don't you just use TLS? <laughs> so, you know, again, this comes back to the previous concept, at least to me, and I feel there's probably reasons to do better than what I'm saying, but, um, uh, you know, back to the concept around our, our story around comments and things like that. It's like, okay, well, if at least you're going to go and start, you know, spinning up uh, salts and all the things you need to do to get in place to actually start doing some other form of crypto in your code, hopefully you put a reason in there why you're doing it other than just it felt like a good thing to do on a Saturday afternoon. Um, I don't know. I'm not trying to be cranky against these guys. It's just, I don't, I don't see the value in, in what they're doing. And that could be me. It could be, yeah, it could be 10, 15 on a Saturday night and they want to roll their own crypto. Who knows? Um, I'm going to try to wrap us up on one final article that is a kind of a theme that you and Adrian sort of started off recently. Just here is a, a call it a think piece um, that that sounds fancy, but it's more of just here is a, maybe a strongly stated opinion about banks relying on cloud computing. And what does that mean for availability or has availability been forgotten? gotten. And I do bring this up occasionally because A is part of the this confidentiality, integrity, availability triad. And uh, historically, just at the beginning of this year, we saw Amazon East outage take out Slack, take out some, some Google functionality, take out some pretty big um, you know, applications that just happen to be running in Amazon East. So I, I think this article sort of posits, you know, are you building resiliency on, in, in your app leveraging the capabilities in whichever cloud service provider you're going for, or did you just kind of assume the cloud service provider isn't going to go down, but you didn't really deal with geographic distribution or being able to have hot failovers? Um, And I think, I guess, what I would sort of bring up with this is more the questions of, is this part of your AppSec team's responsibility to highlight these problems? And does the team that the AppSec 
team thinks is responsible for dealing with or addressing these problems, is that team does that team also agree that they do have the responsibility? So it's sort of kind of poking at some of a who. How do you figure out who's responsible and who's taking care of availability within your org? I think that's kind of the angle that I'm I'm going to attack this particular article with. <laughs> I was looking for a a tweet, and it's going to be hard for me to track down. Um, but somebody was commenting last week that, uh, and, and this is interesting, that the question is, do you go multi, the, the, the top behind this is, do you go multi-cloud, or do you do multi-cloud slash hybrid cloud, or do you stick with a single pl- cloud provider? And, and what sort of pain gets involved as a result of that? This is from that aspect of the availability aspect. Um, and someone commented uh, that the only people who are going to lose by you sticking with a single cloud provider are all the vendors that are selling products to make you be able to use multiple cloud providers. Um, <laughs> it gets really, it gets really complex really quick, right? It's um, yeah. So the, the, the story there is, okay, if you're using, let's not pick the standard one. Let's talk about um, uh, Ali cloud, give them some talk time for a second instead. So if you're in Ali clouds, West U S West coasts, um, data center, maybe instead of looking at a second cloud provider, you go to AliCloud East or AliCloud, one of their China nodes. Um, and there, there's ways to work around this without going and learning a whole brand new uh, API sec, or excuse me, API set. I don't know. The overall, um, it looked like this was written by a staff writer. It is a tank piece. Uh, it, it, and the reason I say that is when I see a piece like this, I start the, the, the jaded side of me starts wondering, especially coming up to Black Hat, if this is a, a vendor talking about this. Oh, but I don't think. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, no, yeah. But from the, point of, from the point of view of is is um, this isn't new, right? You know, Cap One, Capital One has been on Amazon for years. Um, yep. They're one of the better known, more public ones. But there, there's a lot of companies out there that are doing this type of thing. That yeah, you might occasionally get bit, and like Amazon actually had their own outage. Was that last week? I think so. But um, it's good to think about. It's definitely good to be aware of. It's I really like the aspect in there that you pointed out of the um, a who's testing this. Is this a security thing or an operations thing? And then who remediates it? So um, back to our both IAC as well as shift left and all those type of things. These things need to start working closer together in the cloud. Uh, but I I don't think it's um, it's something that definitely needs attention, but I don't think it's like, oh my God, this is going to this is going to be what we we fall on our cross on this one or fall on our sword. Yeah. No, no, by no means. I think it definitely is much more. It's 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 perhaps unexpected when you, if you have a if you're just building up a security program and you're trying to figure out, oh, well, we need encryption everywhere and you know, confidentiality, integrity, those potentially you come a lot easier or more easily within the cloud because there's a lot more uh, primitives for doing key exchange, key management, encryption at rest, encryption in transit, doing the TLS between nodes, as you were saying, rather than trying to just figure out what Go AES um, you know, functions you want to call. And so it's more of just keep in mind that that A is part of it, um, just like A is and, for application security weekly. And and one last final thought on, on that one, which I think is important, is if is for security team security team to be keeping track of what the devs are doing or ops are doing, right? From the point mm-hmm. of view of maybe they've identified this A as a problem and they want to actually make sure they don't get DOSed or have a, a zone fall down in them too. And they start actually using other zones or other locations or other providers and security isn't aware of it and they're not testing it. That could be the, the sticky thing to keep in mind there as well. 
Great points. Where it comes back, where are you deployed? What's your what's your app inventory? What's your asset inventory? And how much visibility do you have into it? Uh, so I think that's a great visibility note for us to end on. I want to thank John for joining me. I want to thank everybody for listening. We're going to see you next week on Application Security Weekly. <laughs>